the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. And you can apply those kind of labels, that kind of identity to any habit that you're trying to build. I'm a runner. I'm a writer. I'm a reader. I'm a meditator. I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. I'm the type of person who finishes what I start. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Welcome to Superhumans at Work. This is your host, Jason Campbell, and the guest we have today is none other than James Clear. This man has just recently sold a million of his books, his Atomic Habits. You might have heard about it. If not, you should definitely pick it up. It's great content. And what we're going to talk about today is really these high productivity habits that you can apply in the workplace. I really enjoyed this conversation because we took all of these ideas from Atomic Habit and really seen what are the powerful habits you can bring, what are the natural habits that tend to happen that you can really correct in the workplace so you can really drive impact, really make a difference, and have a powerful, productive day using some of his key ideas. Enjoy. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show where I have this amazing guest, James Clear, joining us, where we're going to be talking about the concepts from his Atomic Habits book, which has just crossed the 1 million copies sold and is celebrating its one-year anniversary, where we want to apply all of those concepts of what are the top habits that you can have within the workplace? What are some of the existing habits that happen naturally in the workplace? And what is the role that you can play in designing that space to be more productive and apply those systems and methods that James talks about to be the most productive person making a true impact in the world? If you've had a chance to look up James Clear, you know that he's been active in publishing content in personal growth, personal transformation, and really just looking at being the best version of yourself as the number one thing you can do to make the world a better place since 2012. And so with me, James, it's such a pleasure to have you and thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. James, you've written this book, Atomic Habits. It's been raved about. And the way that I actually discovered your book is everybody has a copy of it in the Mind Valley office. <laughs> I'm literally walking around and I'm seeing your book everywhere. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. What is this all about? And you know, the first time we introduced each other was literally when I saw somebody was going through it, they couldn't stop talking about it. And so I wanted to have everyone else listen to be discovering this and to go deeper on the topic. Now, yes, it's wonderful before, to hear. I'm glad you all are finding it useful. Well, I mean, we want to be our best versions at Mindvalley as well. So I wanted to hear your story, though. Like, you've been so active in this field of writing about personal growth concepts. Like, what got you started on that journey to bring you to the place where you've just written Atomic Hobbits? Yeah, good question. So I kind of came at it from two different angles. The first was a personal side. So I suffered this serious injury when I was in high school. Uh, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And the fallout from that was very long. So it took me, you know, nine months to recover. I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking a straight line at my first physical therapy session. And so it was a period in my life when I had to practice small habits, like I didn't have a choice. You know, I couldn't just like flip a switch and go back to being the healthy person I was before. And so that was kind of the first part of my personal journey that taught me about the value of small habits. You know, at that time I was practicing very basic things like going to bed at the same time each night. This was the first time in my life where after physical therapy, I started training in the gym consistently at first once or twice a week, and then eventually three or four times a week. 
And these little habits like exercising a few days a week or studying for an hour before class, they were insignificant on their own. But when you put them together, they started to give me a sense of control over my life again. I felt like I could recover from that and make progress. And so I talk about it more in the book, but I was able to kind of go on this arc and bounce back from the injury and end up having a successful career playing baseball in college and so on. So that was great. Uh, And that was kind of my personal approach to it or personal experience with it. But then I also had more of a professional side. So in college, I was a science major. So I studied mostly chemistry and physics and kind of hard sciences stuff. And then when I got out and started my company, I was launching products, but nobody was buying them. You know, the first like two years, it was kind of just like flopping around and failing. And I asked myself like why that was happening. And I realized, well, one of the problems was I didn't understand how to market anything. I didn't know why somebody would buy a product or why somebody would sign up to an email list. And so that led me to start to study a little bit more about consumer psychology. Like, why do people purchase things? Why do people sign up for things? And gradually, I kind of transitioned from reading about consumer psychology to behavioral psychology and habit formation. And as I discovered that field, I started to draw connections between some of the hard sciences that I had studied previously. I started to learn about the neuroscience of it or the biology of it the anatomy of the brain and which sections and regions are responsible for forming habits. And the more that I got exposed to that, the more my scientific mind started to get interested in it. And so I just began writing about the topics on my own. I had a Word document that was like 60 pages long. It was just kind of James's thoughts on habits. And this was in 2012. And so this is the time where kind of those two fields, the personal side where I had practiced habits as an athlete and as a student, and now suddenly the professional side where I'm researching and studying how it works. And that was the year where I started to realize, oh, a lot of these ideas that I'm reading about, I could actually use them in my personal life. And I would say that for the last five to 10 years, that sort of has been the role that I've tried to play as a writer. How can I be the bridge between academic research and what science tells us about how habits form and daily practice. How can we actually use these in our life and in our work and in the projects that are important to us? And so I would say that's kind of the common thread that runs throughout Atomic Habits and all of the articles that I write. It's a scientifically grounded approach that has a lot of practical application. And that's what I think is fascinating because people love this concept and habit is such a hot topic today. It seems like a lot of people are looking to take control of their habits again because it seems like we've had a lack of freedom or a loss of freedom. Is it just relevant today or is it more prevalent today? Well, I think that we all kind of implicitly understand that our habits play a big role in our lives. And there have been books that have been about habits for years now. I mean, Power of Habit came out a decade ago. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was 30 years ago. And so the topic has been around. I mean, William James, who I cite and mentioned in Atomic Habits, he was kind of the father of American psychology. That was over 100 years ago that he was kind of referencing some of these ideas. But I don't know if it's perhaps because the world is so noisy now or we are so connected all the time that we have this issue now where our habits are kind of happening to us in a lot of ways. We feel like we're the victim of our habits rather than the architect of them. And I think that's one reason why the messages in the book are maybe landing or people are finding them useful because it gives you a playbook for kind of taking control back and restructuring the habits so that they serve you rather than they hinder you. And I think that's one of the powerful things about habits, but also one of the dangerous things is that they're a double-edged sword. They can either build you up or cut you down. And so you need to understand 
how they work and how to structure them so that you can put them to work for you rather than against you. And one thing I've noticed is that companies are very aware of these triggers that create habits. And it seems like if you don't take control of your own habits, there's a lot of companies that have enough marketing sophistication to kind of drive your behaviors without you even being conscious about it. And so I feel like your book is really about giving people back control of their own lives. And I think that's a powerful mission to do today more than ever. Yeah, now, thank I, you. I hope to... so too. I think with the right strategies, you can start to design your behavior rather than having it designed for you, which is a powerful place to be. I wanted to do a recap of the main concepts of your book. And I know for those of you who have listened to the Mind Valley podcast with Vishen Lakiani, they break down both James Clear and Vision. What are the five major steps when it comes to the atomic habit transformation? I wanted to do a quick recap here of the main ideas before we dive into what I really want to focus on here, James, which is about the social environment of the workplace and how do habits play out there. And mm -hmm. so I know that we get started when it comes to identity change. And I wanted to get started there. Yeah. So there are kind of three major themes in the book. And then for actually building a habit, there are like four steps. So there are two separate things. So of the three themes, identity change is one of the big ones. And so the short version of this is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person that you want to become. And so when you show up and perform a habit, like if you study biology for 20 minutes on Tuesday night, well, if you do it once, maybe you don't think very much about it. But if you do it every week, then you start to think, hey, maybe I'm studious. And so each time you do that, you cast a vote for being that kind of person. Or if you go to the gym and you know, work out, even if it's just for five minutes, well, the first time you don't really think very much about it. But if you don't miss for four you know, weeks in a row or five weeks in a row or whatever it is, you start to cross this invisible threshold at some point and you think, hey, I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so every action that you're taking is kind of reinforcing being that kind of person. And I think that this helps us understand what the real goal, the deeper goal of behavior change is. Because a lot of the time we talk about habits as the avenue to make more money or get six-pack abs or lose weight or reduce stress and find calm and meditation in your life. And all of those things are true. Habits can do that. They can provide external results. But the real value, the deeper value that they provide is that they reinforce the type of identity that you want to have. They reinforce being the kind of person you want to be. And so this is why I say things like, the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. And you can apply those kind of labels, that kind of identity to any habit that you're trying to build. I'm a runner. I'm a writer. I'm a reader. I'm a meditator. I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. I'm the type of person who finishes what I start. Those are all positive versions of how your identity can serve you and help reinforce a habit. Now, the challenge is identity can also be used. Again, habits are a double-edged sword, so all these can go either way. It can also be used to hold you back. So you hear people assign identities to themselves like, I have a sweet tooth, or I'm terrible with directions, or I'm horrible at remembering people's names, I'm bad at math. And those kind of identities, they also drive your behavior, but in the negative direction. And so kind of one of the central ideas of the book is how can we design habits so that we're continually casting votes for being the kind of person we want to be, for upgrading and expanding our identity, for growing and evolving to that next level or to that next form of your identity that serves you a little bit better than in the past. And I think it's super powerful here because I think a lot of people don't realize that you know what you say kind of puts that statement in the world or what you think about of your identity puts that statement without you even realizing it. And even using the example where you say not even remembering people's names. And it's almost like you use it as an excuse to not even try anymore. And I mm. feel like those identity statements really take away your own personal power. 
Yeah, this is one of the challenging things. Once an identity has been adopted, the tighter you cling to an identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. You see this in all kinds of areas, something simple like that. Oh, I'm bad at remembering people's names. And so then people use that as a reason to not try very hard to remember someone's name. But you also see it in many other industries, you know, like the teacher who has been teaching for 20 years and they have their lesson plan set. And it's like, no, this is how I do it. And so they don't look at new learning methods or things that have changed or what they can upgrade and teach from there. Or the surgeon in the operating room who it's like his way or the highway, you know, this is how we do it. And anytime somebody becomes attached to their identity or the previous way of doing things, it becomes hard to grow beyond that. And this is one of the ultimate challenges with building habits, which is that in the beginning, you don't have the identity of I'm a runner or I'm a writer or I'm whatever. And so assigning or reinforcing that new identity, that can be a great way to get that habit to stick. But once you have got the identity to stick, now you're looking to grow to the next level. And so it's not a line, it's a circle. You need to like revisit the new identity you have and ask, okay, is this still serving me? And then can I upgrade a little bit from there and so on? So it's a continual cycle. I think this is a really powerful place to just open this up when it comes to the workplace, because I feel that a lot of companies start with the greatest of intentions, and then they set these kinds of identities or behaviors of this is how we do something. And then as the world changes, they cling to that identity so much that they forget to innovate. And I yeah. feel like sometimes this double-edged sword, as you keep referring to, is that going towards very strong identities and these habits can possibly strifle innovation. Would that be accurate? The world is not static. The world is dynamic. And as the world changes and evolves, your strategy needs to change and evolve to match whatever the new context is. But a habit, by definition, is like static and reliable and stable. You do it the same way each time. And so we have to continually ask ourselves, are the previous habits that we have built serving us in the current environment that we find ourselves in? In many cases, yes, those habits do. They're very reliable. Like, for example, exercise, you know, yes, that probably is going to continue to serve you because the context of your body is relatively similar. But if you get an injury or you get sick or something changes, then maybe your exercise habits need to change. Now, in the workplace, this is an interesting question because a lot of the time people talk about culture in the workplace. We need to have cultural change or we need to change the culture of the company. But typically that starts and stops with like, you have a retreat and then you come up with a slogan for what your new culture is, or if it's a saying that's on the wall or something. But the true culture of any company is the shared habits of that group. If it's not a habit, it's not actually part of your culture. And so for that reason, I think habit change is central to adjusting or improving the identity, if we'd like to call it that, the identity of the company, as well as the identity of each individual. And so there is kind of a continual revisiting of those concepts to stay fresh and relevant. Perfect. And obviously, I think a lot of people that have been in the corporate setting have seen the results of that kind of retreat happening. Most often, I think it happens between higher executives. They come back and then they tell us, hey, this is what we are. We're someone who puts customers first, you know. But I feel like this identity, it's almost like sometimes it gets thrown out but people still feel like it's fake. And I know you advocate against the whole fake it till you make it, or you have a very different approach. And I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Yeah, so I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with fake it till you make it in the sense that it's just asking you to believe something positive about yourself. But the problem is I don't know that it's very reliable. I think it's a short-term strategy, not a long-term one. And what I mean by that is fake it till you make it is asking you to repeat this thing about yourself that you don't quite have evidence for yet. So you say something like, I'm a healthy person, or we are a company that puts the customer first, even though like our habits don't back that up right now. 
And that can be okay for a day or a week, but at some point we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion. Like your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what we say we are and how we actually act. And so beliefs and behavior are a two-way street. They impact each other. But my argument is that rather than starting with the belief, the fake it till you make it thing, hey, let's just change what we say we believe and then hope our behavior follows suit. Let's go the opposite direction. Let's let the behavior drive the belief. Let the habit lead the way. And the point there is that if instead of saying, hey, we put the customer first, you just say, listen, every day we're going to spend the first 20 minutes emailing customers to like learn about their problems or to try to problem solve something for them or to show them a little bit of love and praise. That's the habit we're going to focus on. You don't actually even need to say that you put the customer first if you just focus on building that habit. Because once you've built the habit, you provide evidence that no, of course, we're the kind of company that puts the customer first. It's literally how we start every day. And so by changing the habit, the belief often follows suit. And so I think that letting the behavior drive the belief is usually the more effective long-term strategy. And it comes back to this simple thing that we were talking about a few minutes ago, Every action is a vote for the type of person you want to become. And in the company context, every action of the team is a vote for the type of company we want to become. And so by doing that, by building those habits, we are providing evidence of the culture or identity that we want to have as an entire team. Wow. That's really powerful to understand. But there's a part of me that kind of gets a little scared or a little paranoid about it. It's like, wow, every single action is a vote. What if I do something wrong? Like, am I screwed? Did I vote too much? (laughs) Right, right. No. Okay. So that's a good point. And I think we can actually extend the votes metaphor here even further. Your goal is not to be unanimous. You don't need a unanimous vote to win any election. Like you just need the majority. And so we're not even really saying that you have to be perfect. We're just saying that your current collection of behaviors have reinforced a certain identity. And if you want to upgrade and expand that identity, then you need to start casting votes in a different direction. And it doesn't mean that you need to be perfect, but it does mean that you need to start accumulating some evidence of being this kind of person. And eventually, if you get the majority of votes leaning in that direction, then the weight of the scales kind of shift and you start to actually take hold and take root of this new identity. So perfection is not part of the plan but consistency and reliability are definitely part of it. Beautiful. And I really want to make that clear for people in case they get like so frozen with the idea of needing to have that perfection that you don't actually start doing anything. And that's even something that I don't think I've seen it myself because I'm someone who really likes taking action really quickly, especially when it comes to doing these habits. But I have one of my friends I can think about who, when it comes to designing a new habit, they don't want to do anything until they've realized that the one habit that they're actually going to make an action on is the absolute most optimized, perfect Mm. habit ever. And I've seen that not as much in the workplace. In his case, I remember he never wants to go to the gym because he's like, why would I go to the gym and lift weights when I know it's not the most effective way to do it? Mm. And in a company setting, I think your example that you gave is one that I resonate a lot with, which is you want to get more close with a customer, email them or call them, just create conversations with the customer. And that may be is just a one call or one email a day with the customers to reinforce that rule. But what if you get in a company that you propose that, then people are like, oh, is that the most effective, scalable? And then they feel like they need to go on a four-month study. Like, how do you get over that? Yeah, I think throw out this kind of philosophical math equation here. We'll see if you can visualize it. So basically, you have hard work, you have effort. Let's say that's one element. And you multiply effort times time, how much time you put it in for. That's going to get you a certain level of results. 
let's say that hard work times time multiplied by time is in parentheses and it's raised to the power of strategy. And I think what happens is that you have some very strategic thinkers and they realize that the right strategy can provide exponential results. And so they get locked into this idea of like, oh, we have to find the perfect idea. But here's the problem. If you spend all your time strategizing, then hard work becomes zero and zero times anything is zero. And so it doesn't matter if you have the perfect strategy, if you're not putting in the effort to execute, it ends up taking the whole thing down to zero again. There's a place for both, but we need to make sure that we're putting hard work in and executing, even if the strategy is not ideal, because even if the strategy is perfect, the entire equation falls apart. And so I think there's a balance there and it's hard to know the right way to get to it. I don't know that anybody has a perfect answer for how much time do you spend on strategy and how much time do you spend on execution. The way that I put it is that effort sets your floor, strategy sets your ceiling. So if effort is not there, the floor is very low. You have nothing to stand on. But the more effort you put in, the higher the floor goes. But if you don't have a great strategy, then you kind of like cap your ceiling relatively low. So you need both. I love how you've divided that mathematically because particularly the types of people that struggle with this, I feel are usually more analytical. Mm -hmm. And that formula just makes it so clear that, listen, start with that effort. And I know you talk about a lot of things around 1% better each day and like these micro habits. So I wanted to kind of go through that system a little more since we've already talked about identity change and we talked about doing these small habit changes. So I want to continue down that path. Yeah. So the first big idea that we talked about is identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the kind of person you want to become. The other two big ideas in the book, the first one is that habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. So the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And the challenging part about this is that at the beginning of any exponential curve, the difference between 1% better or 1% worse is like very insignificant on day one or day 10. It's very easy to dismiss as, oh, this doesn't really make much of a difference. You know, like what's the difference between making one extra sales call today or not? What's the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad? On any given day, it's not a whole lot. You know, it's only two or five or 10 years later that you turn around and look at revenue or look at the number on the scale that you're like, oh, that extra sales call or that extra burger, those really do add up. And so I like to say, sometimes it's kind of like you go through your life and you turn around two years later and it's like, knock, knock, who's there? Oh, the consequences of my past decisions. You know, like (laughs) whether it's positive or negative, your habits compound over time, but it's very easy to dismiss that on any given day. That's the second big idea is that habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. And so getting 1% better each day, that can count for a lot. And then that leads us naturally to the third big idea, which is that if you're struggling to change, if you're struggling to get the results that you want, the problem is not really you. The problem is your system. It's not that you don't want to change, it's that you have the wrong system for change. And I think we can go even further and kind of connect the dots on all of these big ideas here by saying that you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. So often, especially in the workplace, The number one way that people try to get better results is they say, we need to set a bigger goal. We need to be more ambitious. We need to have a bigger vision. We need to have higher quarterly numbers or more subscribers or a new revenue metric or whatever it is. And the truth is setting the goal is actually the easy part. Like I can set a goal right now to sell 10 million books. Took me 
five seconds. The goal is not that hard. It's actually the system, which I would define as the collection of daily habits that lead you toward the goal. That's what actually drives the results in the long run. And of course, that doesn't mean that goals are useless. Like goals are useful for setting a sense of direction or a sense of clarity, knowing where we're going to allocate our attention and energy. But I think once you've done that, you can kind of metaphorically speaking, put the goal on the shelf and just focus on the system. And that's usually how you get much better results. And so by focusing on the system, the collection of daily habits, you reinforce the desired identity that you want. So that takes us back to the first idea. And you have a way to compound 1% improvements by making them a system, by making them a daily habit each day, the second big idea, and getting that compound interest working for you rather than against you. And so in that way, we kind of can bundle all three of those big concepts together. And eventually you get to the end of the line and you have exponential results to show for it and an identity that is now rooted in evidence and daily habits that are providing the evidence for being that kind of person or being that type of company. I love this framework because again, it's all about these daily systems that will actually allow for those exponential, but the reward doesn't come instantly. And I know we stress that a lot in the podcast that you had with vision, where you really need to design systems. And for those of you who pick up a copy of atomic habits, there's tons of strategies that really break down how to make sure that the daily habits really stick. But what I wanted to move here, James is talk about those habits within a company that I actually witness that could cause a company to slip or not slip. And I wanted to see if you had some ideas of what are best ways that people could have practical ideas on making better habit sticks, I'm going to start with one that I know 99% of most people within a company would complain about, which is people not showing up on time for meetings or just like dysfunctional meeting culture. Mm. Do you have any ways of using your model to be able to make that change? Because I know that's a significant pain point for a lot of companies. Yeah, good question. You can think about pretty much any behavior as producing multiple outcomes across time. This is true for good habits and bad habits. So take a bad habit, like eating a donut, for example. Well, the immediate outcome of eating a donut is pretty favorable. It's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome two years or five years from now or whatever, if you keep eating donuts, that's unfavorable. Or smoking a cigarette. Some people are like, well, if I know bad habits are bad for me, then why do I do them? Well, the answer is they benefit you in the moment. So you know, if you go outside to smoke a cigarette, maybe you get to socialize with a friend or maybe it curbs your nicotine craving or reduces stress or anxiety or something. So the immediate outcome is favorable. It's only the ultimate outcome two years or five years from now that is unfavorable. With good habits though, it's often the reverse. So like the immediate outcome of going to the gym is kind of unfavorable. Your body's sore. You don't have much to show for it. The scale hasn't really changed. It's only if you keep going to the gym a year or two years from now that you get the long-term result you're waiting for. So basically what we're describing here is that the cost of your good habits is in the present. You feel it right now and the payoff is only later. Whereas the cost of your bad habits is in the future. There isn't really much pain that you're feeling right now. And this is something that in the book I refer to as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. All right, so let's take that and translate it to your question about showing up to meetings late on time. One of the core problems is that if people show up to meetings late, then the meeting's less productive, you waste other people's time, there's all this bandwidth in the company that's getting burnt and used up, all this energy that's getting used up, time is getting used up without people being effective. 
But the problem is the cost of that is very vague and invisible and delayed. It's only, I don't know, six months later or a year later or three years later that the reduced output of the company is leading to reduced revenue or not as many products, not as much innovation, whatever. It's almost impossible to tie showing up to a meeting late to a decrease in revenue a year or two or three down the line. And so we have this problem that we just described, which is there is a gap between your action and the punishment. The same way that there's a gap between smoking a cigarette now and having the punishment a couple of years from now. And so one clever idea that I've heard used at A16Z, which is a venture capital firm in San Francisco, for every minute that you're late, it's $10. So if you show up and you're 16 minutes late, you got to put $160 on the table. And they still, for many years now, have stuck to this. I just saw on Twitter last week, one of the partners showed up late to a meeting and there was like 120 bucks laying there. It was like, oh, I guess they were 12 minutes late. So the point of this is that it makes the cost of coming to meetings late very immediate. So it changes the calculus that's going on in your mind where it's like before there was basically no cost. It was just some ephemeral decrease in productivity many years down the line or many months down the line. But now, now it's going to cost you $100 to show up 10 minutes late. So suddenly you bear the cost and it's very immediate. Pretty much anytime you see that, the cost becomes immediate, behavior changes. So students, if their grade is linked to attendance, they don't skip class because skipping class suddenly bears an immediate cost. And so you see that in pretty much any area. So that's the basic principle is try to make the cost immediate or the punishment immediate and the behavior will be avoided. Try to make the reward immediate and the behavior will be pursued. Amazing. That's really powerful. And this is a clear example of where this can be applied. And for those listening, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you witness within the workplace where you could see better habits happening to make the company more productive. And if you start applying this principle where you actually create punishment or rewards that are much more immediate, you can start having people do these behavior changes. And the social environment of the workplace, like I'm assuming it can be a driver to Great behaviors can also be something that sinks down to other levels. Would you have some of the best examples you've seen, like this one being that it's a cost associated to an immediate behavior. So it's a very punishing type of correction to the habit, as you could say. Have you seen other examples in companies that have used other tactics that people could listen to and see how they could apply? Yeah. So there was another company that I worked with or talked to that did an interesting, like rather than a punishment, it was like a praise model. So what they did was anytime somebody did something particularly effective or went above and beyond in their work with other people in the company, anybody who felt like that person was deserving, they could write their name on a post-it note and they kind of had this like wall of fame in the office and they would put the post-it note on that wall. And they didn't have to say what they did. It just, their name was up there. And it's this very public recognition of praise of doing a good job. And so, you know, this wall is right there in the main hallway. Everybody sees it. Everybody walks by it. And so if your name is up there, it's kind of like, hey, you're getting a little bit of the spotlight in front of the rest of the company. And at each all hands meeting that they would do each quarter, they get the entire team together and they would pull a couple of those off the wall and they would have the person that put it up tell the story of what that person did and why they got praised for it. And so now there's a chance that you not only get featured on the wall, but your story also gets told to the rest of the group. And the bigger principle here is that behaviors that get praised are ones that tend to get repeated. And this is something that you can use. I think it's very effective for not only managers, but also for parents or for spouses. 
So a lot of the common questions that people have in families are similar to the questions they have about changing behaviors in teams, which is, how can I change the habits of someone around me, right? They don't seem to get it. I want them to act this way, but they're not. And it's hard enough to change your own behavior. So as soon as you add another person into the mix, like it starts to get very complicated. But one strategy that tends to work pretty well is praise the good, ignore the bad. Now, that doesn't mean that you never correct a mistake, but it does mean that while you're shaping a particular behavior, you tend to focus on praising them more for doing the thing you wanted them to do than you do for criticizing them more for not following through. So a couple examples here. There's a funny article in the New York Times, an op-ed a couple of years ago, of this woman who she was getting annoyed with her husband for leaving his clothes just kind of laying around the house and not putting them in the laundry hamper. And she used to ask him to do it or nag him to like put it back. And that just wasn't working. He would get annoyed and whatever. So instead, she decided for a month, she wasn't going to nag him about it. But whenever he did happen to put it in the hamper, she would make a big deal about it, like run over to him, give him a kiss, give him a hug. It's like, oh, thank you so much for putting that back. That makes like things so much easier, whatever. So she did this for a month and it was going well. And so she kept doing it. And over the course of a year, she ended up shaping his behavior so that he would always put it in the hamper because he basically was like, every time I do this, I get like kissed, I get a hug, I get praised. The same thing is true if you're trying to help someone like go to the gym. If they don't go to the gym consistently and you want them to join you, after each workout, if they happen to make it in with you, even if it's just for five minutes, you can be like, hey, I'm proud of you for showing up today or great job on that set. It doesn't have to be over the top, just something that's positive. And the thing is, and this of course works in the workplace too, you'll see sometimes managers will be told things like, give out five compliments for every one criticism that you give or something like that. But the basic idea is that everybody likes being praised. It feels good to be rewarded or to be a compliment, to be appreciated. And so the more that you can link appreciation with the habit that you want people to form, it's like a positive signal in the brain that says, hey, it feels good each time I do this. Every time I show up and perform this habit, I get praised for it. And we all want to repeat the things that we get praised for. So praise the good, ignore the bad is a simple strategy that I think managers can keep in mind to kind of help reinforce habits by associating them with positive feelings. That's so good because I don't think people understand how important and how impactful that slight difference in where they draw their attention to. And it almost seems that if we go back to the original example of someone being late at a meeting, if someone just like shows up on time meeting and they celebrate the people showing up on time as well also gets to lead to mm. that positive reinforcement. I would also think that it starts building that identity of saying like, Oh my God, we're a company that celebrates yeah. people being on time. And I can see how this whole system comes together. James, this was such a powerful time together to give a lot of these ideas that people can apply around the concepts from Atomic Habits. I wanted to close off with one interesting question, which is the fact that you talk about the concentric circles of transformation a lot. You talk about how a lot of change and positive things start from the self. And you've already touched a bit about how you can start impacting other people in the workplace from place of being a manager. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts as to if I'm an individual employee within a company, I'm applying a lot of your principles from Atomic Habit. I've had this awareness and I'm really putting my life together in the right place. At what point do I start putting an effort to try to change things around my company and around the people around me? Or is that something I even need to do if I'm working on myself? I tend to think the most effective strategy is to be a good role model, to focus on building your habits, showing up in the way that people respect, 
rather than like trying to be the judge and jury and like adjusting the habits of others around you, it tends to not go that well if you try to take this controlling attitude. But there are a few things that you can do that can maybe nudge things along or move the needle in a positive direction without being overbearing. So one of them is environment design. I talk about this a lot more in the book, but there is both the physical environment. So like the items on your desk at work or the things in the community, the cafeteria or the community room or whatever, the open spaces, like how the hallway is laid out. And it also works for personal habits too, like the items on your kitchen counter at home or the way that your living room is laid out. But the shape of these spaces influences what actions we take because it determines what objects are more obvious to us. So like which cues are more visible and it either increases or decreases the friction associated with the task. So it can make some habits more convenient and other habits less convenient. And if you want to change people's behavior without being overbearing, then you can just reshape the environment so that certain habits are more convenient. The desired outcome is like the path of least resistance. And you'll find that more people will do that then simply because it's easier. So that's one possible strategy that you can employ. In addition to the physical environment, you can do the same kind of thing with the digital environment. For example, when I wanted to build a reading habit, I changed the icons on my phone so that right at the home screen on the main bar, there was Pocket, which is an app for saving articles to read later, and Audible, which is for audiobooks. And so the first icons that I would see whenever I would open up my phone were ones that reminded me to read. And we can start, especially those who work in IT departments, start asking, what is the default layout for all the screens at our company? You know, like, can we make the cues for certain software programs or certain applications more obvious so that people are more likely to be able to get into the workflow and so on? You can also do the same kind of thing with any sort of digital reminder. So all company emails or all company text messages, how can we prompt people in a subtle way but remind them to get into the work that matters most. And so those are ways that kind of can help shape company behavior, maybe in a more productive way without going in and telling somebody, hey, this is exactly how you have to run your day. That's super powerful. And I have a clear example, actually, where what happened at Mindvalley is we actually used meeting spaces to be alone and not bothered. But because we had an open office concept, everybody would keep bothering each other within the workspace. So you couldn't work at your desk. And Mm. so we literally designed the environment in the opposite way where everybody's desk had a bit of a sheltered space. So it didn't feel as natural for you to just walk up to the person with headphones, just stand next to them awkwardly until they catch your glimpse and say like, Hey, do you have a minute? (laughs) which is obviously a trap. So I really think that that was actually influenced highly by the concepts that you speak about because that environment is so powerful. And then what I love from what you just mentioned is actually that default setting from the IT department. This is something I think we can implement ourselves. And I think a lot of other people will be able to actually share that within the workplace. James, this was such a powerful time that we spent together. I wanted to wrap this up for the people as we spend just a little over half an hour together here is we want to know that when you want to do this behavior change, this identity change is an important part. And so think about what identities you tell yourselves that you are or you are not when it comes to the workplace and be more conscious of what are the identities that you do want to have? We talked about how to bring those identities into a reality. It's all about this consistency, these small habits that you can implement. And I love James' example of saying, hey, call the customers or email the customers on a daily habit automatically gets everybody within the company to be a lot more conscious about people that they're dealing with, the direct customers, which will naturally bring that identity of being customer-centric by these small daily habits. 
understanding in atomic habits, the fact that it is a compounding interest benefit or detriment. So whatever habits you have over the short term, they don't look like much long term, they're going to be the things that make you have that next promotion. They're going to be that thing that makes your company be the next record breaker when it comes to revenue, profit or whatever important metric is to you. And so be aware of what habits are actually helping you and not helping you. And if there's any of those habits that don't help you because the cost is not real enough in the short term, use some of James' ideas here when it comes to, for example, meeting spaces, create an immediate cost for someone who breaks the rule so you can start altering those habits. And also there was a big highlight here about where you do positive reinforcement will actually allow people to recognize those good habits a lot more than punishment for not doing them. So if you want to make those changes between someone maybe coming to disrupt you all the time, this could be an example where you actually reward the person who usually does it by saying, Hey, thank you so much for letting me have my focus time. This has been super helpful. I've been able to do so much and I really appreciate the fact that you didn't come and disturb me. We've also talked about how there's these small things you can do within this environment, both physically changing the layout, changing the things so that all the habits you want to do have less friction and the things you don't want to do have more friction. And this can be translated in the digital space as well. A lot of powerful ideas, a lot of powerful thoughts. If you've enjoyed what we've covered today, pick up Atomic Habits by James Clear. Go to jamesclear.com where there is a plethora of articles that are of amazing concepts that you can apply not only in workplace productivity, but also in your personal life and even within health and fitness and other categories as well. This was a powerful time with James Clear. James, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and listening to James Clear on this podcast. Pick up Atomic Habits, such a powerful book to look into these concepts that make you a high productive person in the workplace, really giving you a lot of directive and freedom as you want to apply these amazing disciplines in your life in a systematic way. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a rating and tell us what you particularly enjoyed from this episode so we can look at bringing you more of these ideas. And if you see that you've enjoyed this and know other people that would enjoy from the same content, be sure to share this with your friends as we want to keep these episodes commercial-free, delivering you nothing but pure value throughout the entire time. It was my pleasure to have you tune in. Be sure to tune in next time as we'll bring you more ideas for superhumans at work. Take care. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.